Welcome, and thank you for joining us today for the teaching and preaching ministry from Central Baptist Church, Kannapolis, North Carolina. As senior pastor, Dean Hunter shares from the Bible how to live in a fallen world. The goal of Central Baptist Church is to change the world by teaching the Word of God. Come, let's listen in. Appreciate you being here, and uh, we're going to go right in to the book of Romans. You ready? We'll pray at the end of the service, and while you turn into Romans, we're going to finish, we're going to go through chapters. One, you can't hear? Somebody, I saw somebody, can y'all hear me back there under the, under the balcony? You good? Okay, I can scream louder. Yeah, am I good? All right. Um, we're going to go through chapters one through seven tonight. That's a joke. Just want to see if you're paying attention. While you're turning to Romans chapter one, um, I do want to let you know if you weren't here a few weeks ago, right before Christmas, we kind of started this. I had a handout. Many of you got one. We're not going through this tonight, but it's really some introductory comments about the book of Romans and um, if you want to have one just for resources, there's, I uh, printed some more. I had a stack, but they're missing, so I printed 10 more if you just want that. And um, I'm kind of in a conundrum. My wife likes when I say conundrum for some reason, so I say it often. And um, the conundrum is trying to figure out how this, should, uh, this is more acceptable on a Wednesday night for Bible study, whether we want to do handouts. I talked to Tim earlier. Uh, today about actually doing outlines on the screen. Uh, I'm not sure what you prefer or what I prefer, quite honestly, but as we go through this book of Romans, it, uh, I want us to, a few weeks ago when I introduced it, I definitely want us to open our hearts and minds to what God has to say. Uh, Romans is a very, very um, intense doctrinal book, as most of you probably are aware and so I'd like for you to have access to things. Uh, I can always email you notes if you want to, uh, but I'm trying to figure out the best way. I think we're definitely gonna start putting some of the outline on the screen. Uh, since Tim's over here, he's usually working uh, while he's doing some things, and then I've got uh, another, it looks like Brian's up there too, kinda. So maybe we can work that out, because uh, I'm not gonna preach out like I do on Sundays, but I do want us to go through the book and, and to you know the old, it's not really an adage, it's actually uh, been kind of proven. The more you uh, see something, the more you remember, the more you hear and see, the more you remember, the more you hear, see, and write, the more you remember, right? And so if, if we can get a visual up there as well. So we're going to work on it, but it's not there tonight, and so I want to make you aware of that where we want to make this as um, easy to study as possible and uh, easy to remember and I, I do, again, I don't want to overstate, but I don't want to understate the value in uh, going through a book like this where there's, quite honestly, some topics that are, um, have a vast amount of differing opinions, and I'm going to try to tiptoe through those, but uh, allow God to speak to us, not just, oh, I've been a Christian for 50 years, I've been through Romans, I know all about it, uh, which most of us, if we're honest, we, we want to learn more and uh, let God open up our eyes and hearts. And, and uh, I try as I get older, and I'm just being honest, and hopefully wiser and more biblically and spiritually mature, open up passages of Scripture 
uh, and try not to have any biases and say, God, show me uh, through your Holy Spirit what it's saying. Because uh, I know our nature, and I know my nature, is I would like for it to say what I want it to say and what I can understand better. And so I, I hope that's not scaring anyone, but I feel like it's worth the commercial as we go into it. Romans chapter 1. And what I want to do, because we're not going to go through seven chapters, we're actually only going to go through about six verses tonight, hopefully. I want us to, if you want to stand as we honor God's word, I want to read through verse, I said six, verse number seven. Actually, um, that's how far do we want to go? All the way to the end. Yeah, we'll read through verse seven. That's as far as we can go tonight. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name or for his name's sake. Among whom are you also the called of Jesus Christ to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for every person that's made their way out tonight to study your word, to fellowship with each other, to pray for our friends, our church members. And God, we just ask you to open our hearts and minds to your word. And no doubt many uh, mature believers in this room and who have been through uh, your word many times, God, I, I pray that we would just be open and honest and sincere with our desire to learn and hear from you as we study this book. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Before I dive into the actual verses, I do want to remind you uh, when I talk about how intense the book is, uh, really for some context, because the thought might be, we just read seven verses, and if you have a study Bible, it probably says something like Paul's salutation or Paul's greeting. And you would, one would think, potentially, uh, what could we learn from Paul's greeting? in the first six verses of a 16-chapter book, which is, uh, as our paper said uh, a few weeks ago, a book that changed the world, a book that is considered the constitution of Christianity, the Christian manifesto, or the cathedral of Christian faith. So there's 16 chapters in this book. We read six verses, seven verses, and we're gonna really just study those seven verses tonight. And I, and I say that just to remind us or to make us aware of how powerful this book is. That even from the very, like, horse out of the gate, Paul starts, even in his introduction and in his greetings to the people there in Rome, to the believers in Rome, there's a lot of doctrine and theology even in his introduction. And so when, with that in mind, I want to just remind us of a couple things of who he's writing to. Not going to go through the whole sheet and the whole introduction from a few weeks ago, but Paul is writing to the church at Rome. More specifically, he's writing to the saints or the believers in Rome, not a church in Rome. 
Now, I think most of us are well aware that we're not talking about the, any type of Roman church. We're talking about the church of believers that are in Rome. If you remember a few weeks ago, if not, it's fine, we play along, that um, there was no physical church in Rome like a Baptist church or a Christian church in Rome. Uh, Paul actually writes and he says uh, in the first few verses, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. The indication is that there's, there's house churches, there's not one facility where they're all meeting together, but there is a group of collective Christians in Rome. And so he's not writing to this physical church, Rome Baptist Church. He is writing to a group of believers. And if you remember, potentially, uh, part of the reason for him writing is to help disciple them. The history, tradition, uh, just some good common math, not common core math, we don't like that, but common math, we would deduce that many of these people who were believers in Rome came from Acts chapter two at Pentecost, and they went back to Rome as believers and met together with, and fellowshiped with other believers and said, hey, let's start a church. And they started meeting together. So there wasn't, um, they didn't have their, their policies and their bylaws and their constitution together. That's kind of facetious, but they didn't have a lot of uh, discipleship. They were just, they knew they were believers and they knew where they were together and they wanted to meet together. And so Paul, one of Paul's purposes is to write to, um, to help them to grow together. Most of this church, most of the believers are made up of Gentile believers. I think I wanted to throw this out there too. The book of Rome, Romans, I almost said the book of Paul, was written uh, around 57 A.D., 55 to 58, some say 57 A.D. And when, whenever you see that in Scripture, I hope, I hope when you look at timeline, especially something before the first century comes to a conclusion, and think specifically of 57 A.D., there are people living who saw Jesus. There's, there's people who saw him before and after his resurrection. So this is not... Uh, 300 years later, somebody writing about something that happened that they heard about. This is someone in Paul who is writing about someone they knew and had experienced, but he's also writing to an audience of people who knew who Jesus was, potentially aunts, uncles, grandparents that lived, uh, that had seen, that they had heard about, or those people themselves uh, could have seen Jesus. So it always brings context to, to a letter or to a time frame when you think about it being so close, if Jesus uh, lived to be, well, it's not really 33 AD because our calendars aren't the same, but let's say 35 to 37 AD, or if you go to the other side, 30 to 33 AD, uh, the, this is definitely within 20 to 25 years of Jesus resurrecting and ascending. So it's not just uh, old stories passed down through the ages, there are real life uh, witnesses to Jesus and his resurrection here. So now in this book, Paul introduces, uh, we'll find out through what's interesting about the greeting and the, the um, really his salutation, if you will, is that later in the book, some of the, in the book of Romans, you will find uh, passages that allude back to how this all happened, and we'll get there when we get there, but uh, most of us 
uh, or some of us may be aware of how uh, Paul ended up getting this letter to the Romans uh, through a nice lady who was on her way there, most likely. So enough of that. Romans chapter 1. Verse number one. What I want us to do is look at some, and I've written it out this way, some observations and lessons from Paul's greetings uh, to the Romans. So first, let's look at his greeting. In verse number one, I want us to see that Paul acknowledges himself as a servant. So there's going to be an outline. It's not on the screen. But first, we see that in this greeting of Paul, he's going to acknowledge first himself as a servant. Verse one Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Now, in my notes, I have servant, apostle, and separated all highlighted. Those are really key words in verse number one, where Paul, who is writing this letter to help believers, acknowledges himself as a servant, a servant of Jesus Christ. Doulos is the Greek word, uh, which means servant or bond servant. We've heard Paul, if you've been in church more than a few weeks, we've heard Paul referred to as a bond slave or a servant of Jesus Christ. We don't just call him that. He were referred to himself as a bond servant. If you know anything about this um, idea of a slave or bond servant in the first century, uh, most of them, some of them, let me say it this way, some bond servants were those who chose to be a servant. But the, the, the language for the majority of the time are those who are enslaved, uh, uh, technically against their will. And so that's important to understand, that this is the word that Paul is using, that he's a bond slave to Jesus. Uh, when we think servant, we think, I'm, I've got a servant's heart. I'm doing this because God told me to be a servant. I want to serve you. And Paul is saying, I'm a servant of Jesus. I'm a bond slave uh, technically, the term is someone who is uh, in service or enslaved in unwilling and permanent bondage from which no release, there's no release but death. Now think about that in context. That's who Paul acknowledged himself as. He's enslaved to Jesus. Now, kind of parenthetically, against his will. Now, I don't want to go too far with that spiritually. But if you remember Paul getting saved, he didn't go to church that day looking to get saved. This is a great example uh, when we think about our salvation, and we'll dig deeper into this in a second. Paul is in the middle of just being a, um, an adversary, is a mild word, to the cause of Christ. He's a persecutor of Jesus, a persecutor of the church. He's uh, overseeing deaths of believers and... Um, he has a meeting on the road to Damascus. And um, he, once again, was caught off guard by this meeting. He didn't go into it expecting. And God shows up, Jesus shows up, and uh, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He has um, quite an encounter where he is um, blinded. And within that context, we think of how, and I, I don't want to go any farther than this, Paul had nothing to do with his calling to salvation. If y'all know anything about Romans, this makes sense. Paul had nothing to do with it. He didn't say, Jesus, will you, will you um, call me to be an apostle? Nope. He has this encounter with God. 
Because of he, his understanding of salvation, he understands himself as a bondservant. He is now enslaved to the cause of Christ. He says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. That's another word, uh, along with called, that's important. Uh, in a King James, it says, just like I read, called to be an apostle. Maybe a better English understanding is um, he is a called apostle. We understand it to mean the same thing. Paul was divinely called by God to be an apostle, not himself. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's certain, they're not really denominations necessarily, but it's becoming a kind of a fad. I, I don't fad's probably not the right word, where uh, some people refer to themselves as apostles today. And um, I don't want to dig too deep into that, but this word apostle here that Paul refers to himself as has a specific uh, definition. The word apostle is used 79 times in the New Testament. And only a few times, a very insignificant, quite insignificant few, does it refer to, some, to everyone who's called to follow Christ or called to serve Christ. The word apostle that, that Paul is using here is the more specific term that is used the majority of times in the New Testament that refers specifically to men who were called by God to carry out his commission. Those men are the disciples. There were 12 of them. Uh, one was the devil, replaced by Matthias, and then Paul. These are men who were specifically commissioned uh, to authoritatively proclaim the gospel and lead the early church. Now, I'm not saying you can't call yourself an apostle if you're on commission for the Great Commission. That's not some of the context we're hearing church leaders refer to themselves as today by giving themselves the name apostle. You can do with that what you want to do with it, but I'm never going to ask anybody to call me an apostle. And I would prefer you not to do the same because I ain't going to do it. Remember, Paul is blind. On Damascus Road, he is, has this encounter. He's blind. God said to Ananias about Paul. This is in Acts chapter 9. He is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Now, I'd like to think, now I don't want to play on this too much. I'd like to think that we are uh, special uh, servants of God called to give the Great Commission and to share the good news of the gospel. But we've never had, none of us have ever had a verse written about us where we had this encounter with God and God sent a special messenger to come to us and say, he is a chosen vessel to um, propagate the gospel to a select group of people. This is what happens with Paul. In Ananias' message to Paul in Acts 22, listen to what she says. The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one, and to hear an utterance from his mouth, for you shall be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Later in Acts chapter 26, Paul says this about himself, that Jesus had spoken and said to him, but rise, stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which you have seen and those things in which I will appear unto thee. 
delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles and from and unto whom now I send thee to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. This is what Paul said in Acts 26 about his apostleship, that he had a, a special calling of God and he refers to himself as a called apostle, as a servant of Jesus. And then we see the word separated. He is separated unto what? Separated unto the gospel is what we see there in verse number one. This separated is what we've heard uh, preached to us for years and years that we're to be, we're to be separate, we're to be called out. It's a, it's a word that actually in the Greek means to present or to lift up. And Paul said, I am called to be separated unto the gospel. To do what? To lift up the gospel, to present the gospel. And he is separated for that purpose. That's what Paul says about himself in his introduction in verse number one. Uh, what's interesting, we see Paul writing Galatians chapter one, once again, after he grows in grace and knowledge, that he says in Galatians chapter one that he, was, that he who separated me from my mother's womb, Paul began to understand that from the very beginning, God had a plan for his life even before he was born. And, and there's a, in the midst of a lot of doctrine, in the book of Romans, there's a, a ton of practicality that where we start to understand, we learn the, real, the realization that God had a plan for us even before we were born. I, I read that, even this afternoon, I read over my notes and was adding some more notes and I thought about this and thought, many of us can look back in our life and think of times we were so far from God. We were in, now, we understand before, before Christ, we were an enemy of God. We all were. We're born that way. But think of bad decisions that we made before Christ, before we were born again. And if you were to, don't do it because it's not healthy. If you were to take yourself back into that day when you didn't have God on your mind, you didn't have serving Jesus on your mind, you weren't saved, and you were living like the devil, you were an enemy of God, you were not his friend, you were at war with him, you were an antichrist. If you could put yourself back into that state of mind, you would have never thought, one day I'll be serving Jesus and I'll be a bond slave to him. Now think of Paul's life and how he's murdering Christians, having them murdered, watching over the murders of Christians, causing havoc among the church. Surely he would have never thought, one day I'll be telling people I'm enslaved to Jesus. But practically, that's exactly what has happened to all of us. Because we were an enemy of God. And we were not doing anything for his cause or for his purpose. But now, just like Paul, as we grow, as we mature in our Christian walk, we, we look back and by scripture and by faith, we realize and this is where it's kind of hard to fathom. For those of us who are saved, God knew before we were born in our, in our mother's womb that he had a plan for our life, a plan to salvation, and a plan for service. And this is what Paul's looking back now on in Galatians chapter one. 
verses 15 and 16 when he says, God had a plan before I was ever born. Paul understood that he was born for a purpose. He was separated into the gospel of God. And that word there, that gospel of God is interesting. That phrase, it's, it's used 20 times, the gospel, in the book of Romans. It's uh, simple. It's the good news. William Tyndale referred to it as glad tidings. This gospel is, and this is, once again, let me not forsake to say this, Paul is introducing himself to a group of Christians, and one of his main motives is to say, what I'm about to share with you is not from me, it's from God. Now, I've read and studied and looked at some different commentators and books, and, and when you start to think of what, how Paul is saying, he's making this announcement of good news, a lot of times in a kind of a royal setting, there was always this good news and the guy would come out and blow his trumpet and hey here's good news and all the people would come out to listen to what the good news is and there's definitely definitely some application here but Paul from the get-go says hey I'm not coming out like a herald blowing a trumpet and going to give you good news from this local king or this local official I'm giving you good news that's from God and so from the very beginning, he acknowledges who he is and the message that he is going to bring is from God. Uh, I think, quite honestly, he's trying to get out of the way. If you don't like what I'm about to say, don't blame me, blame God. I kind of do that every Sunday. Like that's part of my prayer, part of my thought. If you look at me funny or people get mad, it's like, I'm gonna blame God for it. Now, if I get up and say something that's out of a magazine or out of my head that's not in the Bible and you get mad, that's my fault and you can be mad at me. But if I say something from Scripture and you don't like it, I can always blame God. And I think maybe that's what Paul was doing. Don't blame me, blame God. So what are some lessons we learned even from verse number one? As believers, we are servants to God. We are slaves to God. Now, I don't want to mess some words up here. When, I, when, this ver, when this definition is that you're unwillingly, that doesn't mean that you're now saved and don't want to be. It doesn't mean that you're now a servant of God, but you wish you weren't. What it means is the, the, the transformation had nothing to do with your will. You became a bond slave, and now you understand you, you are owned by somebody else. And so we see that in 1 Corinthians. This same Paul writes in chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God? And you are not, of, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. This is the understanding of a believer. This is the understanding of Paul. I'm a bond slave. I'm a servant I know who I am, and I'm no longer my own. I'm trying not to say too much, but there are people that are confused. There are, quite honestly, denominations that are confused about the security of their salvation. And I don't wanna, I don't wanna jump off that bridge this soon in chapter one, verse one. But when you understand how you were called to salvation and that you were not, it was not of your own. You did nothing to deserve it or to earn it. What would you ever do to undeserve it or unearn it? And so Paul understood, hey, I've been bought with a price. I am no longer my own. Now you can go further. If God's gonna buy you with the price 
of his son's precious blood, why would he ever let you go? Different story, different day, but I, I believe there's definitely some truth in this message at the very beginning. Number two, we're all called to share the gospel. We're all servants of God, and we're all called to share. As he said, he was separated unto the gospel. And then the last thing in this first verse is, as believers, we're to be separated for service to the Lord. Uh, that's a Sunday morning, 45-minute sermon about separation. But Paul acknowledged that from the very beginning. He also talks about it in 2 Corinthians. So first we see Paul acknowledges himself as a servant, and then next we see that Paul acknowledges Jesus as Savior. When we look into the next couple verses, verses 2 and 3, told you there's a lot of doctrine, a lot of truth, a lot of theology, even in the first few verses. It's important to understand when we think of, I'm going to throw this big word out there, y'all ready for an ology word? We think of soteriology, the study of salvation, the reality of salvation. I know I'm talking to Baptists that have been in church a long time, and it's probably not something that's going to be earth-shattering. An essential understanding of the gospel is the reality that the gospel, the good news, the salvation plan was not an afterthought to God. It was not something that God said, oh no, the world has just turned on me, there's sin rampant, I better do something. Now that may or may not help, but the reality is God is sovereign and God had a plan from the very beginning. We see that even in the first few verses of the introduction. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, we'll look there, well let's just read verse 2 real quick which he had promised, talking about the gospel, which he had promised aforetime by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning Jesus. So this plan was not something that God thought up after man went crazy. In Ephesians chapter one, Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us into the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Quick 20-second timeout. That's a huge doctrinal mouthful of verses, right? The good news is we're not studying Ephesians right now. We're studying Romans. But this has a lot to do with some opinions. I'll leave it there for a second. But that passage has... A ton to do with the reality that salvation was God's plan before the foundation of the world. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, in verses 18 through 20, For as much as you know, you are not redeemed with corruptible things. We know this passage of silver and gold from your vain conversations. But with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times to you. Now, that may or may not do anything for our discipleship or to make us excited. I don't know. Maybe it does. But it says everything about the sovereignty of God and the knowledge of God, which the psalmist said is so high, I cannot attain it. There's a few words, I'm gonna take a little break here. There's a few words in these 
verses that I've read that get people scared to death, especially in the Baptist church, right? And so we're trying to be all right and be everybody calm about those. And I will say this, just as a side note, and I've said it before, I'm not too proud or arrogant to say I haven't gotten it all figured out. I hope I'm biblical enough to know that I cannot understand the mind of God. Anybody want to just look at me like you agree with that? We can read his scripture and just understand that makes no sense to me, but I'm going to believe it by faith because it's the word of God. Even though I might not like it, or even though I might have a better way of understanding it, when I don't understand one of my, one of my goals in life, even as a pastor, even spiritually, doctrinally, is to say, I just can't understand that. That's my response, quite honestly, when some people want to argue some things. There's not a clear understanding. If I'm in a room with five people and five people have five different opinions, I'm not going to throw in my fifth one when I don't understand it. Because my opinion is worthless if it's not truth. And there is only one truth. And I might not have it right. And I am one of the first to ever say, I think we'll have a lot of our theology straightened out in heaven. If y'all will buy into what I just said, I won't have to say a lot more as we go through some of these tough words and passages. <laughs> Somebody's wrong. And I'm all right to be wrong. But if I'm not sure about it, I'm not going to argue not knowing whether I'm right or not. Now, if I'm right, I'm going to argue till the cows come home. If I'm not sure, I'm going to got to be honest enough to say, you know, I just ain't got that figured out. And I've had some of those conversations with some people in some of these contexts with some of these verses. So what do we know about Paul acknowledging Jesus as Savior? Uh, first, we said in verse 1, they understand it's the gospel of God, which he had beforehand promised. And so that's the gospel he's referring to. Uh, we understand and uh, the gospel is good news. It's all about Jesus. So look at verse number three. Concerning, so the good news, the, the gospel that he's promised in verse two is concerning who? Concerning, verse three, his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Just in time for Christmas, we can talk about that, or right, just almost in time. And declared, verse four, to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now, we as good Baptists look at that verse and say, that's right, that's right, that's right, good. Well, he's got all that right. But I want you to think of the context of the audience that he's writing to, and he's coming, once again, straight out of the gate. This is who I am. By the way, um, Paul had never been to Rome. He had heard about them. He had a desire to go to Rome. We'll see that later and see that in other uh, following uh, text. But they didn't really know him. They'd never met him. They had probably heard about him, but they didn't know him. So he's writing this letter to help them, and he feels the, the need to tell them who he is and say, I'm, I promise you, that's not what he said, I'm called of God, I'm an apostle of God, and I'm carrying God's word. Once again, there you are, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just a, I'm just a messenger of God, but, but he's also... Uh, Convincing is not a great word, but he's, trying, he's attempting to convince them of his authority. That this is a word from God. 
and I'm a messenger from God. And here's the message. The message is the gospel, and it's all about Jesus. Who's in the crowd? Majority Gentiles. Are there Jews? Of course. There's other nations there. There's other types of people there. I mean, there's really Jews and Gentiles, but there's other different ethnicities, if you will, we would say today. There's other people in the group, but there's definitely Jews in the group. There's definitely Jews that are going to get this letter and read it. And, and what we do know in Romans and the church in Rome, because Rome was not a ton of Gentile believers, there's going to be this, um, and this is kind of after we'll see this, there's an influence of Judaizers. We hear that phrase in the New Testament, a lot of Paul's letters. And this is those who are still, I'm very elementary, people who are practicing Judaism, and once the gospel kind of comes onto the scene, one of the problems Paul dealt with often was those Judaizers trying to mix and mingle their Judaism with Christianity. And so Paul knows this. Paul knows what they're uh, about to face or the potential of what they're about to face. And he says, hey, let's just come out of the gate. This is all about God. This is all about the good news concerning who? Listen to what he says. His son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. What a mouthful. Jesus is God's son. He is not only God's son, he is, he's divine, he is God, he is the Christ. He says, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Christ means what? Anointed one, the Messiah. He's acknowledging in that title that Jesus is the Christ, he's the Messiah, and he's Lord. In a mouthful, in one sentence. Which was made of the seed of David. He's the son of man, he is man. He came from David's, the seed, the line of David. Once again, it wasn't just Joseph who was in the lineage of David. Mary was in the lineage of David. He's covering all of his bases about who Jesus is. And he says, his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the son of God. He is God. He is the Messiah. And he is sovereign Lord. And if that didn't cover it all, he goes into verse 4 and talks about the declaration of the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. How? By the resurrection from the dead. Did he not just cover, I think, every aspect of who Jesus is in relation to the gospel? The Son of God. He's man. He's God. And he rose from the dead. And so he acknowledges who he is, and then he acknowledges who Jesus is. The power of the resurrection. And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 writes a whole chapter about the importance of the resurrection. And then in verse 5, by whom we have received grace. Who's the whom? Jesus. He just talked about who Jesus was. By whom we have received, here comes the first word, grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations. That word nations there is among all the Gentiles. Everyone for his name. Look in verse 5, the, very, the first part there, by Jesus, by whom we, Paul talks about he and his leaders, his messengers, if you will. He's referring to himself specifically. By whom we have received what? Grace and apostleship. Grace, uh, we know, is going to be a headline word in the book of Romans. The unmerited favor of God. If you've never heard this before, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense is another way to kind of remember uh, a helpful reminder of what grace is. 
And he says it's through Jesus that he has received grace, which is salvation, and apostleship, which is his calling of service, salvation and service. This is by God, this is by Christ that we've received, that I've received grace, that I've received a calling of God. Once again, there's a good place to throw in the lesson for us, an application. Our calling, our salvation, and our service are both from God. God has called us to salvation, and God has called us to service. Paul writes later in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We know this about grace, right? For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Notice he says in the middle of that verse, verse 5, this is interesting. For by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith. It's a nice, it's an important statement there, this obedience to the faith. It's maybe sounds or, or works better, obedience that comes from faith. Paul is saying, by whom I've received grace, my salvation, and my calling to service for obedience to faith, to the faith among the nations. And he refers to the obedience to faith. What a mouthful, and James talks about faith without works being dead. And Paul is saying obedience is really paramount to faith. Remember what we went through James, right? It seems like a few years ago we went through James. And James has a, a, a nice little dissertation about faith and works. And if you really are born again, if you've really been called of God to salvation, if you've really been called to God by service, it will show up. Paul, in the very beginning book of Romans, in the book of Romans, talks about the need or the necessity for obedience to the faith. That could expand into a lot of areas of, should expand into a lot of areas of our life. If we're men and women of faith, born again men and women of faith, then we are to be obedient to his word. Step away from I guess you could say the scholastics of James and think about the practicality of our life. It's easy preaching, hard living, but how our life would be so different if we were just obedient. Our faith was proven by obedience and we were obedient to what God's word said. If we did what he said do and we didn't do what he said not to do, in obedience, what a difference that would make. Now, not that we're all perfect, but we're all striving for perfection, right? We still slip, we still fail. But is our desire to be obedient to him? I think that's the question, kind of the question of all questions when we're trying to figure out, even people's eyes, am I really born again or not? I mean, people still question that. That's not, a, that's not a 1980s problem. That's a today problem where people are, am I really born again? And people and the devil will get on you and your flesh will get on you. are like, man, if you were saved, you wouldn't do that. Anybody heard that lately? Some, some in your ear, you heard it? I'll be, I, I still hear it. Sometimes it's my flesh and sometimes it's that mean looking red devil on my shoulder. It's like, if you were really, would you struggle with that? Would you think that way? Would you do it that way? 
And here's the question. Are you striving for obedience to faith? Now, if you live like the world and act like the world and do all the things of the world and it don't bother you one bit, but you claim to be Christian, there's a problem. Because there's no desire to be obedient to his word. And I think that's, the, I, it might be an oversimplification, but I think that's a good test. Am I struggling with obedience to his word? If I'm struggling, it's probably because I've still got flesh and I'm not glorified yet. But is my desire, is my heart's desire to be obedient to his word, to be obedient in faith? And that's what Paul talks about here at the very beginning. So Paul says, um, he acknowledges uh, himself, he acknowledges Jesus, and he talks about the grace of his calling and his service. And then I want us to close real quick with verse six and seven, which is uh, pretty short, and um, where Paul acknowledges the believers as saints. So he acknowledges himself as a servant, he acknowledges Jesus as a savior, and he acknowledges these believers in verse six and seven as Saints. It's not a lot of hard preaching there, but he says, To among whom, in verse 6, are you also the called of Jesus Christ? Now, this is pretty simple. He just introduced himself as someone called of God, called to salvation, called to service. He's telling this somewhat undiscipled church group of believers in Rome, Hey, and so are you. This may be something they had never heard in their life. If they got saved at Pentecost, they understood they were a sinner, they understood Jesus died for their sins, and you gotta, you're gonna, the wages of sin is death. I don't know what the message exactly sounded like. We have it in Acts chapter two, but I don't know if we had every word. And they understood that, and they believed on Jesus for salvation, just like you did, just like I did, in a simple gospel message. And now he comes in, and he's trying to help them, and he introduces himself as being called by God. God did this. You didn't do it. God made the initiative. God took the initiative. God reached out to you. You weren't reaching out to him. And he says, that was me, in verse six, and so were you. You were called of Jesus as well. And, and I don't wanna be over practical about this, but when I think about Paul on the road to Damascus, again, it's a perfect picture of Paul not reaching out to Jesus, but Jesus reaching out to Paul. I got a plan for you, Paul. The plan is salvation, the plan is service. Later, Paul says, he had this plan before I was ever born, and now I know it. Paul is discipling this church in Rome saying, you were called the same way. God called you out. You weren't good enough, God called you out. And so, so were you called. Verse seven, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, Called to be saints. What? Saints? I never see saints in scripture. Hardly ever hear people say saints uh, that I don't think of what my grandmother told me one time in my backyard, in their backyard. And uh, I probably will never see saints again without remembering this. Uh, my grandmother grew up in a Methodist church and with some messed up theology. I believe she was born again. She said she was. She lived. She was faithful here. I was with her days before she died in the hospital. We covered the salvation thing and made sure, and so I don't have any question about it based on her profession and her testimony. And so, um, but she didn't have all of her theology right. I'll just put it that way. And um, I knew that because one day she didn't agree with something I had done or something, I don't remember. 
And now my grandfather thought I was the center axis of the universe. My grandmother, not so much. But one day she yelled out the back door on Rose Avenue. She said, Dean, you ain't no saint. And I don't remember the context, but she was wrong because I was born again and I was a saint. And if you're born again, you're a saint. Whether you act like you ain't or not, if you're born again, you're a saint. And so Paul introduces this idea and this whole word saint is really, uh, we kind of oversimplified, it's, it's separated, it's set apart. It's this uh, sanctification idea. And Paul says to all of those beloved of God, for God so loved the world, right? God is love, First John. For those of you who are beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace. Once again, here's the calling. He called you to salvation. He called you to service. He called you to be separated. If you're a believer, you are by nature, by, new, by your new nature, saints and separated. I say this often. I think this is kind of the, the crux of our generation. I used to say this to our teenagers a few years ago when I was the youth pastor. We, our world has gotten so nuts and so anti-Christ. You know, we used to, I would joke and say, you don't need to get your Bible and stand up on the cafeteria table and preach to anybody anymore for them to know you're a Christian. You just gotta act like you got some good biblical sense and you are so different from the rest of the world. They know something's sanctified about you. And that's the truth. And that's where we are. Not that it's necessarily easier to be a witness, but you don't have to stand on the street corner. You can if you want to and preach to people, but just live right, live biblically, and you are so separated from the world, people are like, what's wrong with him? What's wrong with her? I mean, here's a, here's a crazy, this will blow your mind. Go to church faithfully, and people will say, what's wrong with him? What's wrong with her? Unfortunately, some so-called church members say, why did they go so much? No, but that's the difference. So if you're born again, you're in church, and they're like, hey, that's a sign that something's different about that person. Now, don't do that and then go home and cuss your dog and kick it and fight and get the police called on you and give us all a bad testimony. But they're called to be saints. You may have heard this before. His last, his, um, in his introduction of himself in verses one through seven, his, his kind of conclusion of his introduction is verse seven which is somewhat spiritual. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, he kind of bookends who Jesus is, but this phrase, grace and peace, I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but it's a common uh, kind of a New Testament, first century phrase, grace and peace. But I heard this before, I don't know if there's any validity to it. Oh, there's validity, I just don't know how um, mind-blowing it is that you can't have peace without grace. And so grace always comes before peace. And so that's this first century kind of, bye-bye, um, grace and peace to you. And so Paul is just in seven verses, in an introduction, in a salutation, is preaching the gospel, telling who Jesus is, telling who we, he is, and telling us who we are as we receive this letter. Thank you for listening today. If you'd like to know more about Central Baptist Church, events, and ministries, please visit our webpage at cbckannapolis.com.